Let's, uh, let's pray before we start. Lord, we thank you very much for your word. We thank you that it informs us and it, in fact, equips us for a work of ministry that's very real. I'm thankful that we don't just speak in terms of concept and theory, but we get to study your word, which is absolute truth. We get to study this thing that you've breathed out and given to us as a gift. And we have the privilege of doing so without having to whisper tonight. God, I'm thankful that you would give any of us a heart and give us your Holy Spirit that we might have understanding. So, Lord, that that is, in fact, what we ask tonight, that you would give us understanding, insight, wisdom, uh, so that we can walk in the truth, uh, so that we can reconcile our lives to where maybe we're not walking in the truth. And when we hear the truth, we can can make changes and we can um, repent and confess our sins and follow you wholeheartedly as an act of worship for your glory. Lord, I pray specifically in Genesis 35 that you would... Uh, teach us uh, your will uh, through our forefathers, as dysfunctional and crazy as they are. We love you very much, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we were in chapter 34, and it's a really difficult chapter. Um, it is not, it's not the most encouraging of chapters. And then just when you think you see something encouraging, you realize that you're sinful for thinking the thing was encouraging. What I'm talking about is in Genesis 34, we see that uh, Jacob and his family, they've, they've left Laban's house, and they're supposed to be going to Bethel. He sees Esau. He says he's going to go to Seir. Instead, he goes to Succoth, and then he goes to Shechem. And so he's in Shechem, and ultimately, he's not supposed to be in Shechem because God told him to go where? To Bethel. And so what happens in Shechem in chapter 34 is his daughter Dinah, he has other daughters, but she's the one that that is specifically mentioned. And Dinah goes out in chapter 34, uh, it says she wanted to see the women of the land. It's probably not much different than what anyone else would do. If they moved to a new city, they would go and see what the city's all about. Uh, The problem is, is that this is a very wicked and godless land. And what happens was, was Dinah goes out and this guy Shechem who is the king's son. The king's name was Hamor. And uh, he decides he uh, likes the way that Dinah looks. And what ultimately happens is, is he rapes her. She is, it says he laid with her and defiled her, humiliated her. And so he speaks tenderly to her too, which just disgusts us even more because you see him saying what he needs to say to really get what he wants. And the result was that Simeon and Levi come up with this plan uh, to, um, to what they see is, is really remedy and resolve the problem. Uh, the, the issue is that it's a very sinful plan. The sons, Simeon and Levi particularly, say to them, well, we cannot be joined with y'all because y'all are not a circumcised people. So essentially every male in Shechem is circumcised. And it says on the third day when they were sore, uh, Simeon and Levi went in and drew swords and massacred everybody and murdered them. And we kind of realized that our tendency might be to give Simeon and Levi a high five and say, that's right, you don't mess with God's people. Not only did you have to circumcise yourself, but then you got murdered because you don't mess with God's people. But that's not actually a really faithful response. The, the reality was we should be telling Simeon and Levi to put their swords up. That's not a way you deal with problems. And so it's hard when you see something bad happen and you think, I mean, I told y'all that I wrote in my Bible on, when I read it the first time journaling through this, I just wrote awesome because I thought it was awesome. I was like, they got him to circumcise themselves and then they killed him. That's awesome. 
But it's not awesome because they shouldn't do that. You shouldn't lie to get people to circumcise themselves and you shouldn't kill them after that. Just kind of a general rule. And um, so what happens is we come to the end of the chapter and it's really kind of a awkward standoff kind of situation. Um, we ended on a low note. Things at the end of the chapter were not so hot. Dinah has been raped. Simeon and Levi have slaughtered every Shechemite male as a form of anger and vengeance cloaked in righteousness and honor. Jacob is unhappy with his sons, while the sons seem to be quite pleased with themselves. So you end chapter 34, that last paragraph, it says, Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You've brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. So there's still, there's still a tinge of being a sissy with Jacob and worrying about what people think of him. But he also has concern because there are a lot of other people who would be happy to kill them too which is a problem. God's people are different, and they are, there is a distinction made between God's people and the whole rest of the planet, everyone else who's in the area or anywhere else. And so Jacob, while he is a bit of a sissy, he also still has concern and saying, hey, guys, you, you just slaughtered an entire kingdom, two of you. And while that might be kind of impressive, uh, there's other people who could just as easily turn on us, and that's probably not the best move. So you end with Jacob says to Simeon and Levi, you've brought upon me, you've brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? End of chapter. Awkward pause. Okay, so... So are we on the same page or no? Or what happens here? He, Jacob's saying, guys, you shouldn't have done that. And they're saying, yeah, well, does he treat us just like a prostitute? What else, what else are we going to do? And, and it's just kind of a standoff here. The reality is what should their concern, anger, and emotions have led them, Jacob included, to do? This was an, imper- an important point. All that anger... All, that, all those emotions, all that concern, what, what should that have led them to do? Seek God. Repent. Yeah, Jesus, Holy Spirit. Uh, yeah. Pay more, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, rather than the sad reality at the end, I mean, they shouldn't have been in Shechem in the first place. They should have shepherded their daughters and protected, chaperoned their daughters. Don't let said daughter go out into unknown kingdom. It's not a matter of, I trust her. I just want to establish some trust with my daughter. No, that put her in a horrible spot in this chapter. And so what we see is there should have been more shepherding, more protection, more chaperoning. But also there should have been, I mean, at the end of the chapter, you see every male dead. So everyone who's everyone's daddy, all the Shechemites. Imagine little Shechemite boys and girls and mamas. Everyone's daddy, everyone's husband, everyone's brother is dead. And so what are all the Shechemites doing looking at God's people? Are they saying, thank, thank goodness for God's people that they showed up? No, they're just as disgusting as anyone else. They look godless because, in fact, God hasn't really been mentioned to this point. And you end chapter 34 
on this sort of low note, um, a particular point to consider in retrospect is that uh, disobedience and the basic foundational truths will have negative effects. Reaping and sowing are, are real. That's a reality. It's not just symbolic terms we use to explain when things go wrong. Uh, reaping and sowing are real. Thankfully, we have grace and mercy, so it's not to the extent that we deserve, because should we get to the extent we deserve, we deserve God's wrath. It's towards unrighteousness because it suppresses the truth, but he intercedes. You cannot expect that things will go accordingly if you're not shepherding obediently according to the word. An example would be that some parents might disregard biblical teaching and discipline and wonder why their child is not a God-fearing Christian. Well, there's problems at the surface level, and they're going to come out in the obvious life-to-life application. Why does my, my child not love the Lord? Well, do you speak of the Lord? Are you praying for your child? Um, are you all in the Bible together? Um, <clears throat> your problems at the ground level will greatly be affecting the higher floors. A, a crooked foundation will often result in a crooked roof. Um, Jacob should never been in Shechem. So there were negative results. Ultimately, the chapter ends in this standoff where you're not really sure what happens next. And very thankfully, the Lord shows up in chapter 35, verse 1. So look at chapter 35. God is incredibly good. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. God, when God speaks, he doesn't, he's not flippant with his words. He chooses them very carefully. So I could very easily just go to the next verse and say, okay, God showed up, that's good, next verse. But I'd like to take a few minutes to consider what, what God actually said and what's going on here. God can speak to Jacob because God never left Jacob. God's been there the whole time. I heard one commentator explaining that there's some who say that God never speaks anymore. Like if I were to say, I think the Lord told me to do this, there's some who would say, no, he doesn't do that. It's, it's only, he doesn't, he doesn't say things to his people anymore. And then there's some who they think the Lord speaks just all the time. It's, he showed me where to park. He, he showed me what to buy. He showed me what color of shirt I was supposed to get. It was between the blue and the red, and I'd pick the blue, you know. And, and so there's a lot of, um, there's kind of different opinions on how much God speaks. But here when God speaks, he speaks specifically to his chosen children. And he says, go to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to God, to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. When God refers to himself in the third person, it's not annoying. When anyone else does, it usually is. God reminds Jacob of what he was called to originally. That's merciful. God says, go, go to Bethel. I told you this once, I'm going to tell you again. Go to Bethel. And what God has done, um, he reminds him of what he was called to originally. He reminds him of what he's done in the past for his people. What we see here in short, I mean, it, it, it might be obvious, but I think it's worth stating. Um, God's aim is not to be ignored, overlooked, or dismissed. God's aim, the reason he says, Jacob, go to Bethel. Make an altar to the God who was there when you left and ran from Esau. He's making this big statement of, I'm God, and I don't want to be ignored. I don't want to be overlooked, and I don't want to be dismissed. My question is, um, what would possibly cause God's people to do such a thing as overlook or dismiss or ignore him? Why would God's people ever do such a crazy thing? Trusting in yourself, yeah. 
seemed like a pretty good plan. Act like you're going to Seir, go to Succoth, end up in Shechem, buy some land. We're, we're moving along. Oh, God's they go to Bethel. Why else would God's people overlook, dismiss, or ignore him? Prosperity? Explain that a little. Yeah. It must have been a pretty wicked culture. Can y'all imagine a culture that would use materialism to cause you to ignore, dismiss, and overlook what God says? And can you imagine such a place? Why else would we do that? Just practically, not, not particularly to the chapter, but practically for, for us. Yeah. Yeah, don't, don't like what we're going to hear. It might be hard. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I can see, I'd prefer to walk by sight, and I can see my plan. Walking by faith, I can't see all the stuff. I got to walk by, uh, you know, faith. Oh, yeah, yeah, well, he had some land in Shechem. How about that? But it's not worth the trade-off. What else? Easy? Yep. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, sometimes we can be distracted in the process, and what our greatest concern becomes is not what it should be. Like his greatest concern became Esau, and when that worked out, it was like, okay, I can breathe now, all the while forgetting God said go to Bethel. We, we can get caught up in things like that where we might have a financial downfall and we think, oh, we just got to get through all this financial stuff when in reality, God's saying, no, obey me. Do what I said. The details will work out. It'll take time. It may be hard, but obey me. Don't disobey me. Don't dismiss what I've said. Don't overlook Bethel. Cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches will oftentimes cause us to overlook, dismiss, and ignore what God says, but he won't be ignored. He, he is gracious enough to repeat himself here. Anytime I see God repeat himself in the scriptures, it just floors me. Just think, really? You're God and you repeated yourself to hard-hearted, foolish people. Thank you for that. That should floor us. That should not be common to us where it's like, oh, that's nice. No, that should blow your mind because he could just wipe them out. We've seen it happen before. He could say, you know what? Enough's enough. But here I see lots of grace and mercy in repeating himself. Why do you think that God tells him to make an altar? He says, go to Bethel and make an altar. <clears throat> Remember? Yeah. What else? Yeah. 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 What do you normally do at an altar? 
sacrifice, submit, humble yourself. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. In fact, turn back to Genesis 28. Um, have, you, have you ever been counseling someone or encouraging someone who is just in a really hard season and just like, man, what, where is God? I don't know. I feel like my prayers are not going any higher than the ceiling. And sometimes it's, this is a great opportunity to say, well, let's, let's go back. Where's, where's the last time you experienced God's presence and you, you saw him and you saw his work? And then they can recall and recount God's wonderful deeds as an act of wholehearted worship and be stirred up by way of reminder to God's goodness and his faithfulness. Here in Genesis 28, um, verse 18, I believe. 28, 18, yeah. It, this is where the Jacob's Ladder dream, um, the uh, stairway to heaven uh, part of the Bible. Uh, verse 18, 28, 18. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head. Remember, he left home. Jacob had left home because Esau was comforting himself by gonna, wanting to plan to kill him. And so he goes. He's got nothing but a staff in his hand. Uh, here, he's a nobody. I mean, he really, he has a name because the Lord has given him a name. He's called him out. He's, he's separated him. But he's by himself in the wilderness. It's a pretty, I mean, a wilderness experience alone at night. A rock is your pillow. It's a pretty destitute um, desperate situation. It says, so early in the morning after God showed him this vision of the angels ascending and descending, showing that God is not aloof or distant, but very active in creation. Here at the, at the end of that, he says, so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. So God is telling him to go back to that place and make an altar, but previously he had already made a pillar. And he said in verse 19, he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, I will, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear. What did he ask for? Bread to eat and clothing to wear. So that I again come to my father's house in peace. So if I come back here, then the Lord shall be my uh, God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. You see these things the full tenth, you see a tithe, you see God's house, you see an altar, and none of these have been uh, formally established yet, so there's, there's a bit of foreshadowing here, but you see that he said, give me food and, and give me clothing, and if you bring me back to my father's house, uh, you're my God, and, and, and I'll live for you, and God here is saying, go back there, look what I've done, what has God done? Here in Genesis 28, Jacob is by himself with a stone for a pillow and a staff in his hand. What is Jacob's situation in Genesis 35? Does he still have only a staff? Very wealthy. This dude's loaded. Many wives, which is not the most, uh, not a good idea uh, at all. Uh, but many children, very blessed, abundant herds, the spotted and speckled sheep business was going well for him. Remember Laban's stronger flocks became the weaker and then the other became the stronger and, and God blessed him and multiplied and made him strong. He's got strong sons here. Um, it's a very different thing and God's saying, I've brought you around and, I've, uh, and I, I want you to come back to Bethel. 
and make an altar. The reason is that it's not just a geographical issue. This is a worship issue. It's not, I'm God and I don't really like Shechem, but I really like Bethel, so go settle there. It's, it's not just geographical. This is a worship issue. Um, previously, Jacob made a pillar and now he's told to make an altar. It's a picture of God's steadfastness. It's sort of a completing of the circle here, showing that God is completely faithful to himself. God, remember what he says in Isaiah, I will accomplish all my purposes. Even when you're a bonehead, even when you make mistakes, even when you are faithless, I am always completely faithful to myself, is what God is saying. In short, God is saying, remember when you had to leave home and become a man for the first time at like 100? You remember that? I was with you then, and now you're a better, more sanctified man because I've been with you since then. So come back here and set up an altar. It's not just a pillar of remembrance. It's an altar. It's a place of worship. It's my house, and you'll worship me. It's about me, not you. Look at verses 2 through 4 in Genesis 35. Yeah. So spiritually, yes, but physically, I see him kind of, you know, I see him bowing down. Yeah. Yeah, it's sweet. You see that in verses two through four as well. Look at verse two. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel. We should have been in Bethel already. Get in the car. We're going to Bethel. Let us arise and go to Bethel so that I may take there, make there an altar to God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. There's a reality that has surfaced for him. He's like, God never left. He, he, he has answered me and we're going to go and worship God the way he said, get in the car. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and and the rings that were in their ears, Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. That's a weird verse. Um, what's interesting about what Jacob commands of his family? What does he say? Purify yourselves. And what does that process look like? Okay. What's weird about that? There's false gods. This is Father Abraham's family, drawn out completely different from the rest of all of creation, sanctified, made different, distinguished between them and the rest of the earth. And what do they have? Foreign gods. And who's not surprised? Jacob. It's almost like Jacob says, hey, guys, oh, um, we got to go. And y'all can't do that anymore. That's not okay. Um, I've kind of been a little too lenient over the last few years. And uh, this is not cool. Uh, we're not just going to pack up everything and leave. We're going to get rid of the foreign gods. Because God told us to, to worship him and, and to purify ourselves. This is a picture of a dad who has maybe not made the best decisions for much of his fatheringhood. And now he's saying, uh, yeah, no more of that. And that's good. There, there's sometimes a mom or a dad will get to such a place where they've been so lenient and you have this little crazy child running around doing whatever they want and foreign gods, worshiping foreign gods maybe. And uh, that comes in different versions here. But, um, 
And, and it's, you kind of throw your hands up and say, I mean, I guess, I mean, it's just too hard to change now. No, it's not. Jacob's family was screwed up. They were in Shechem. They'd experienced some really horrible things. He had allowed foreign gods into their home. God had said, you're altogether different for my glory. And they brought foreign gods in. And he wasn't even like, God told me there were foreign gods. He's just like, hey, we got to get rid of those. That's a good thing. When a parent says, you know what, enough's enough. We're going to fear the Lord. Let's, let's get rid of the foreign gods and let's move forward in faithfulness. And uh, it is a hard call to make, but it was a necessary call. Polytheism is not abnormal for this people. Polytheism, worshiping many gods. God doesn't like that because he is the one true God. And so when you have the one true God mixed in with a bunch of other gods, it distracts and causes you to overlook and ignore and dismiss maybe what God is saying. Because these other polytheistic arena here, these other lowercase g gods, will oftentimes be very available and ready to give you exactly what you want, maybe even when you want it. It's like a medium. A medium or a uh, psychic always has something to say. If you got the money, they got the time. God might say, you don't need to know that yet. Wait. Patience is, is, is the fruit of the Spirit. But there's, there's these times where these gods are very readily available. They were in their home, and they were in their, their home, and they weren't very mindful of God who was present, like Jacob just said. And so here, turn to Exodus 20. I want to kind of draw this out a little bit. You may be familiar with Exodus 20. But in Exodus 20, verse 1, again, it says, And God spoke all these words. When God speaks, let's pay close attention. He chooses his words more carefully than anyone else ever has. Exodus 20, verse 1 through 6. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Again, hear God saying, I won't be ignored, I won't be overlooked, and I won't be dismissed. Yes, I've already done that, and I'm going to remind you that I did that. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. I mean, he's covering all his bases here. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. God does not give commands addressing things that are of no concern. Let me say that again. Imagine, he, he refers to himself as father. God likes family things. He, he refers to himself as father God. And he doesn't, you can think of it as a parent, God does not address things that are of no concern. You can't walk into your three-year-old's room and, all right, no throwing knives today, and walk out. And it's like, is there a knife-throwing problem with the children? Um, no playing with matches. Okay, well, are there matches around? No? Okay. But maybe it's, y'all don't, y'all need to put each other first. Y'all need to share your things. What I'm getting at is that just like when you're parenting, you don't just throw out random things that are really of no concern. You have an eye to what your concern is, and you address it with your children. Our Father God does the exact same thing. When He says, put no other gods before me, 
No other gods. Not some gods. There's not some that are a little more uh, respectable than others. None. He says that because it's a concern because he knows the heart of his people. What I'm getting at is Jeremiah said, we are, well, we're not basically and inherently good. Jeremiah 17 says that uh, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Well, God can. He says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So God's saying that he knows the condition of our heart. So he addresses us according to what he knows we're prone to. God addresses us according to what he knows that we're prone to. So when he says, no God's before me, he said, I know you are going to think it's more convenient and better and easier, but it's not going to work out in the long run. That's idolatry and it's stupid. We're not allowed to use the word stupid in our house, except for when we're talking about idols. We, we, we were trying to eliminate the word in the house and we were reading through the scriptures and it said, and the idols were stupid. And Ella goes, God said stupid. And I said, okay, from here on out, if you're talking about idols, you can say stupid. And so every now and again, she'll just run in and say, daddy, idols are stupid. And then run out. But, um, but this is, that's what God's getting at. He's, he's saying that that will do you no good. And he says, I know the condition of your heart. I know what you're prone to. And as your heavenly father, I'm going to speak to that. My words are not frivolous. My words are not um, haphazard. I'm specific in what I say. And I choose my words. I'm God. I have more wisdom than any of you. Don't put any gods before me. So he addresses us according to what he knows we're prone to. And really what I want us to see is it's no different for Jacob's family. It's no different for Jacob's family than it is for us today. When God speaks to Jacob, go ahead and turn back to Genesis 35. When God speaks to Jacob, Jacob understands that it means it's time to put away the foreign gods. This is an issue of purity. God's revealed certain things to Jacob along the way where Jacob, when God says, it's time to go to Bethel and it's time to worship me, it's been time, go now. You don't need to be in Shechem any longer. When God is so gracious as to repeat himself, you don't see Jacob saying, God, well, what, what, you know, what route should we take? Or what do you think? Jacob knows it's time to put away the foreign gods. He knows my house is full of foreign gods and I cannot take this household with foreign gods to Bethel and worship God wholeheartedly because the foreign gods get in the way of wholehearted worship. It's an issue of purity. Now, the question that I have to ask us to consider tonight in light of these verses is what gods does your family need to put away? Because it may not be a little statues or whatever, but idolatry is rampant. And it's easy. It's really easy. What gods does your family need to put away? Because I would offer that these gods that were in Jacob's house were not obviously overtly evil. In fact, as best I can tell when I'm looking at the scripture and seeing, you know, how they traveled from, you know, they were in Laban's place, and then they went towards Seir, and then Succoth, and then Shechem. What I'm guessing happened is that um, these are likely the gods that they picked up as they went from culture to culture, seeking what each culture had to offer. So I don't think it was these fanged, ugly creature idols where it's like, ooh, that just looks creepy. It's probably like, oh, that'll help me with, uh, with my uh, prosperity or my patience or whatever. Cool, we'll take that. Okay, that, that's good for that. Okay, we'll take a little of that too. 
They probably went through each culture and said, that's seemingly noble. And they filled their house up with it. But what they filled their house up with was the very thing that God said, no, that does not equate to wholehearted worship. That's not okay. What are some of the gods that our culture offers that we can find ourselves easily giving way to? Money? Prestige? Vicodin? We need to talk afterwards we can. <laughs> Comfort? Drugs, education. Oh, education. Drugs and education. We just mentioned them together. That was neat. <laughs> Entertainment. Entertainment. Why are all these things appealing? Why, why can, I mean, I thought money was good. I mean, how can that be a bad, I mean, I want to work through this a little bit. How can entertainment or money or education uh, seem, uh, how can that end up being something we're giving way to as a, as a God? Okay. Yeah. Save me from what? What do you need to be saved from? That's kind of the question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you see what you're giving time to and giving effort to and giving resources to, and you would never say, well, I, I love the news more than I love God. It's like, no, that's not the case, but where, where's it? I mean, when the Rangers lost, did it ruin your day? Did it just kill you? Are there people who aren't here right now because the Rangers lost? I don't know, probably. They were down by a lot. Yeah, they, when they lost the first game of the series and they were up by eight, did it ruin your day? Sorry, I'm sure someone has, I'm sure someone has an iPhone out checking it right now. So, yeah. But the, what I'm getting at is that you know, obviously there are things we can easily give ourselves to. But I think it takes. Jacob had a time here, here where God got his attention and said, "Okay, this is not okay." And what it caused Jacob to do was it caused him to go from hearing from God, and he goes to his house and says, "Okay, it's time to change some things in our house." And a lot of times we talk of changing things in our homes, um, but don't follow through with it. And Jacob follows through. They get rid of the foreign gods because that can't be a part of worship because it's, it's godlessness. And so um, I really want us to soberly consider that tonight. That there may be gods that you need to rid from your family in one way, one manner, or another. I know, that's the weird verse. I have no idea what he says. He hit him. Are you going to come back for him? Yeah. It's like hiding from 
behind a tree from God. I mean, you hit it under a tree, it's really not any different. I, I, I am, he may have been hiding from his family. That's a, we'll go with that. I like that. Um, yeah, yeah. You'd think you'd just light them up, just light them on fire and be done with it. But, um, but yeah, I, 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 that, that verse puzzles me, frankly. Oh, go for it. I love it when people bring commentaries. And, yeah. Hmm. Maybe. That is an interesting thought. That's a great, yeah, that's a great parallel because, I mean, we know the church not to be a building, obviously, it's a people. And so, if this is God's house that he's building, I mean, that if, if he's saying that to Jacob, that's a great point. Jacob should look at his house and say, this probably isn't what God had in mind, and we need to make some changes accordingly. And as long as we can forget the terebinth in Shechem, we're good. point is get it out of the house. That's the big point we can't lose or, or miss in this because consider the impact it had on the family. I mean, it's not likely that the family is like, thanks, dad. I'm so happy to get rid of these idols. Um, it was probably, there was probably a moment where Jacob probably sat and said, I don't know if Levi can live without that. I don't know if Reuben's going to be able to do without that. I wonder what, how Dinah's going to be waking up tomorrow without that. And because there's, there was probably a real comfort found in, in that. I mean, they are gods, and their aim is to appease in some way. And so um, the impact on the family, I mean, consider what it would be on your family. The hope, it's not just get rid of the bad stuff. It's get rid of the bad stuff so that my worship is not affected. Because in place of that bad stuff, I want wholehearted worship of the one true God. And I want it to be reiterated in my home daily. I don't want to have to walk around and see this little God over here and this little God over here and remind them. Comparatively, it's not the same. Be rid of them. And, and there's a real impact on every family member there that had any drawing to these other gods. Look at verse 5. This is interesting. And as they journeyed, 35.5, and as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Our God is so mighty that he can cause terror to fall upon city after city for the protection of his people. We should be mindful of that. That should affect us. 
If he's calling you in a certain direction, you have particular fears and concerns, you need to be mindful of the fact that our God is so mighty, he can cause terror to fall upon those who would, have, who would terrorize you. Interestingly, check out the mercy in this. It's a sweet sign of mercy. God's saying to his people, remember what you did to the Shechemites? I'm not going to allow that to happen to you. That's a lot of mercy. Remember how you slaughtered the Shechemites? I'm not going to let you be slaughtered right now. That's not going to happen. I'm God. I'll cause terror to fall upon them before that happens. And in verses 6 through 7, And Jacob came to lose, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, and he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. The result is worship. We only worship God because God has revealed himself to us. Had he not revealed himself to us, we would be worshiping foreign gods. We'd be worshiping something. We might worship ourselves. But had God not revealed himself to us, we would not know to worship God. And so that is great grace and mercy that he would do such a thing. And look at verse 8. And Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, she was mentioned previously as Rebecca's nurse who was sent with her. Um, but now we know her name is Deborah. Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth, which means, if you look down, uh, Oak of Weeping. Now, it's an interesting insertion, and I, I find it to be especially appropriate, uh, because this is normally how the death of a loved one happens. You're moving, the family is in transition, there's something going on, you're in the middle of worship, and a loved one passes. It's not something that's like, when I was reading this, I was like, well, that kind of took away from the flow of the chapter. That's what death does. That's what the death of a loved one will do. It, it will sober you up. And what, what I think is interesting here is rather than distracting their worship, it becomes a part of their worship. And they do what's appropriate when a loved one dies. There's never a convenient time to lose a loved one. Then in verse 9 through 15, it says, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padanaram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall, you be called, shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. This is a really, 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 really big deal right here. This point, and this, this whole chapter is transitional, but this deal right here, he says, your name shall be called Israel. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Remember, the Lord chooses his words carefully. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar, and in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. God's people have obeyed. They've cleansed themselves. They've worshiped God as God has said to. And now they are moving ultimately towards Hebron where Isaac is. And the main point is that God appeared to Jacob again, exclamation point. And he blessed Jacob, and Jacob gets a new name. Jacob's new name is Israel. Was a country named after a man, or was a name, man named after a country? Because a lot of times we think Israel, we think, oh, well, the Israelites, the nation of Israel. Where'd that come from? God gave this man a new name and multiplied his offspring to become the nation of Israel. What does this section of Scripture obviously remind us of? Hopefully we don't miss it because we've been studying Genesis pretty in depth. 
Yes, absolutely. The covenant he made with Abraham. Who are some others in the scriptures that have been given new names and what's the purpose of it? Saul became Paul. Abram became Abraham. Simon Peter. Jacob's being likened and put on the same level as Father Abraham here, and that's a big deal. God's boldly stating that it's through Jacob, now Israel's offspring, that the entire earth will be filled with God's glory. It's through this lineage that Jesus will come into the earth. And God reaffirms his mandate to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And then look at verses 16 through 21. Then they journeyed from Bethel when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Ephrath, whatever. Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you shall have another son. So the midwife there, even in that culture, it was known um, a son is a, is a blessing, and that's good. And she tries to comfort Rachel by saying, Hey, hey, it's okay, I know you're hurting, but you're going to have a son. But this did not comfort Rachel because she was in such anguish. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name uh, Ben-Anai, but his father called him Benjamin. Now, Ben-Anai, just so we all know, means son of my sorrow, and Benjamin means son of my right hand. But his father called him Benjamin, so Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb, and it's the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. Interestingly, in Genesis 30, verse 1, Rachel states prophetically, Give me children or I shall die. We didn't know at the time that it was prophetic in nature, but give me children or I shall die. Rachel's life ends in a sad way, and consider how much he loved Rachel. He was obviously more drawn to Rachel than Leah. He served her for many years, and those years seemed but a day because of the love that he had for her. You can go back and remember all the poetic aspects of that courtship and the weird ups and downs as well. But she's in such anguish that she names her son, uh, son of my sorrow. And thankfully, um, Israel steps up and says, no, I'll name him son of my right hand. What are the implications of the naming him son of my right hand? Yeah, they may be. Where's Jesus seated? Yeah. There's a picture here of power, vigor, stature, might, steadfastness. When you're boxing, I heard one guy talking about it, trying to explain this. He said, when you're boxing, the left hand just kind of butters you up, but watch out for the right hand because it's got the power and the strength. Um, Jesus is seated at the right hand. Um, It's interesting that Rachel dies first. I want to really carefully walk through this um, because it's hard to understand. One commentator made an observation that I want to share, but I don't I don't completely agree with it. When you read commentaries, you don't have to say, oh, yeah, they're 100% right. Sometimes it's like, ah, I don't know. But sometimes you can see something that allows us to come to another point where we can have greater understanding, even though it may not line up perfectly with what they were saying. What he states is this, the Lord often deprives the faithful of his own gifts to correct their perverse use of them. So if something that's a gift becomes an idol, the Lord will often take that to correct your misuse of it. And what he's alluding to here is Rachel. He's indicating that maybe Rachel was a sort of idol for Jacob. 
I don't know if I make the jump, but I do agree that when we take something that is a gift and we use it in a perverse manner, maybe it's money, that the Lord will sometimes remove that thing. And it's interesting because he goes on to say, in taking away from his own people the occasion of sinning, he promotes their salvation. What are some other examples that y'all could think of where God might remove something that was otherwise a blessing or a good thing, but because of your perverse use of it, he will remove it because in removing your ability to sin, it's promoting your salvation. What are some other things y'all can think of? I said money because it was the easy one. Maybe a job that you're overcommitted to. That's a hard reality. What are some other things? Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think of any other examples. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pretty severe, but that's God's standard, an eye-gouging, arm-hacking pursuit of holiness. Does that comfort you tonight? <laughs> it's interesting that, that Rachel dies in the place where Jesus will one day be born. She dies in Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. Relationships? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Say that again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I hope y'all see why I want to tread lightly on this, because I, I don't want I don't want anyone to draw a misplaced conclusion that if you've lost something that it's because it was God taking it only because of your sin. I, I wouldn't go that far. But I think we need to be careful not to use the gifts God has given us per, for our own perverse, you know, um, ideas. Verse twenty two. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. And that's weird. Um, why do you think Reuben would do such a thing aside from the reason of lust? Rachel died. Reuben slept with Bilhah. Huh? Lonely? It could be. That could be part of it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, here Simeon and Levi have already sort of dismissed themselves or excused themselves from the blessing of the firstborn because they're murderous. And so Reuben kind of stands in the gap, and I think this is a power move uh, that he's making with his father. He's laying with one who his father has laid with. And the, the thing is, is that if Bilhah can be dismissed, um, that makes Leah number one. And if Simeon and Levi are dismissed, that makes Reuben 
number one. So Simeon and Levi were disqualified from being firstborn. Reuben is making a power play. His aim is that he and his mommy are positioned strategically in the family to hold the most power. Some people call it incestuous. Some don't. Best case scenario, it's adulterous. Interestingly, who was the son that was collecting the mandrakes previously? Remember that? Mandrakes. I heard one guy call it Viagra 1.0. Mandrakes. Yeah, the passion fruit, if you will. That was Reuben. And it's interesting how early on in life you see this thing that maybe it was never repented of, and it becomes an issue where he says, yeah, I'll use sexual immorality as a way to gain power. Why not? Maybe it started with mandrakes. Certainly worth watching, making sure that you are not perpetuating or winking at sin. Look at verse 22, the second part of 22. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah, uh, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Nasher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, that is Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. Why they couldn't say that first, I don't know. It's easier to state. Where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last. And he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. This is a... Man, everything just kind of comes together. People die. People get new names. I mean, this is a big transitional chapter. And really what we're getting at is we're going to start focusing on the life of Joseph here shortly. Isaac dies the way that God said he would. This is not actually chronological in nature. We'll, we'll see later a little more information on this. But the point is, is Moses in his writing of this is aiming to wrap this up and, and show that we're transitioning to focus now on the life of Joseph. This chapter is a transitional chapter that gives us more insight into our dysfunctional forefathers. Here, the God of rescue and redemption takes a polytheistic, disobedient, wishy-washy, sexually immoral, idolatrous, murderous, and even incestuous family. That's your heritage. That's where Jesus came from. And redeems them. Redeems them. That's really, really good news. We should be thankful that God turns Abrams into Abrahams and Jacobs into Israels and Cephas into Peters and Saul's into Paul's. So some pressing questions we can't overlook. Where is your Shechem? Some of us might be sitting in Shechem right now. I don't answer out loud. Think through these though. Where's your Shechem? Some of y'all might be sitting smack dab in the middle of Shechem and you need to get rid of the foreign gods, purify the family and worship the Lord. Where's your Bethel? He who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. Where's your Shechem? Where's your Bethel? What gods need to be removed from your houses? James 5.16 states, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The implication is that without confession, prayer, and repentance, there's not healing. Our forefathers needed healing and we today need the same. Our sin leaves us sick and malnourished, but the Spirit renews and refreshes and informs and guides and encourages. An appropriate response to God's breathed out word in Genesis 35 that is perfectly capable to equip us for the work of ministry we're called to is to purify ourselves, to repent of our sin, 
and remove the foreign gods and cling to Christ as your righteousness. It's not just a matter of getting rid of the bad. You have to see Christ as your righteousness, not just a means to righteousness, not just a vehicle so that you might learn how to live rightly. His righteousness is counted as yours. That's great reason for celebration. God is so full of grace and mercy. To know any of these truths is amazing. Be able to see it in the lives of our forefathers, and it's the same with them as it is today, that God takes wicked, crooked, deprived, deceitful hearts, and he cleanses and he changes people. And it's really good news. We should share it, and we should live it. And we should be eager to get rid of the foreign gods and to live a life of wholehearted worship for God. I want to pray to that end, so let's close in prayer. Lord, you're unspeakably, incredibly, immeasurably good. I'm thankful for the work that you did in the life of Jacob. I'm thankful that Jacob was able to look at his sons and his daughters and his wives and say, "Um, enough is enough. We need to stop this and we need to worship God. We should have been in Bethel. We shouldn't have been in Shechem. We're going to Bethel. I'm thankful that you caused that in him. I'm thankful that they're in Bethlehem where he had to lay his, his cherished bride to rest that that's this place of unbelievable redemption where Christ would be born. What I'm thankful that as we look at this, our Old Testaments and we see all these old chapters and stories that maybe we've never paid too close attention to or maybe we've heard them just as character studies, but how we can, if we look closely and we focus on the things you tell us to focus on, that you can just see Jesus being the thing that threads it all together and brings it all together, the glue that holds it together, the fulfillment of the things mentioned. We're so thankful for Jesus. I'm thankful that we don't have to figure it out. I'm thankful that we didn't read this story and see a loser named Jacob who just had to figure it out on his own. I'm thankful that you met him in Shechem. I'm thankful that you meet each of us in our sin. We don't get cleaned up and then come to you and worship. You come and say, you're filthy. You need cleansing. It's only found in Christ. Repent, turn from your sin, accept Jesus, see Christ as your righteousness and worship wholeheartedly. If you didn't take that step, we are depraved and we are as helpless as Jacob and his sons and daughters in Shechem. Without your redemption, we're surrounded by nations that just want to see us dead, physically and spiritually. God, I'm thankful that you are so good. I'm thankful that there is never a time where we see you um, just decide to give up on your people. The fact that we are sitting here today with any understanding of your word, with any redemption in Christ is a sign that you have not done that and that you are good and that you will accomplish all your purposes just like you say. We love you, Lord. I pray that we would go to our homes tonight and if there's any foreign gods that need to be removed, I pray that we would remove them. If there's any fathers and mothers that need to say enough is enough, I pray that that would happen tonight. And I pray that it wouldn't just be removal. I pray it'd be a time of wholehearted worship where you are glorified, where there's nothing put above you. I pray that this would sober us up and that we would approach it rightly in response to your word. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for a finished work outside of us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.